Dr. David White here for CRIM 260, Delinquency Prevention and Control. And so, again, these summaries are meant to help you out if you're on the go. You don't have the opportunity to sit down and read through the chapter summary that's provided in Canvas. Or uh, you just prefer to get the audio version rather than try to read through everything yourself. Well, this is just me providing you with that opportunity, hopefully making the material for the class a bit more accessible to you. And so, uh, assuming you're listening, you're taking advantage of that, I hope you enjoy uh, the fact that that's built into the course. I found last semester for the first time that the students uh, really enjoyed that. And so, uh, so I'm trying to make it available and accessible through all my classes. And so we are talking chapter two today, the nature and extent of delinquency. And so this chapter more or less introduces us to a lot of the aspects of data. And in criminal justice, we love data. We collect a lot of data. And so this chapter just provides us a little intro to that. The objectives include comparing and contrasting the most important methods used to gather data in uh, delinquency and issues of juvenile delinquency to identify trends in delinquency rates. And so we want to talk a little bit about what a rate is when we're talking about uh, criminal justice statistics, especially when we talk about crime rates. What do we mean by that? So we will get into that issue. Uh, we also want to talk about the factors that influence and shape uh, the di direction of some of these rates. That is what causes crime to go up or down. Uh, other objectives include uh, listing and discussing uh, some of the social and personal uh, correlates uh, of delinquency. When we say correlates, we mean things that are correlated. Okay, There is a statistical relationship between uh, this variable and that variable, right? And so that's what we mean by correlates, correlations. Uh, analyze uh, the concept of the chronic offender. And so we'll talk just a little bit about chronic offenders and categorize the factors that predict teen victimization. So when we think about crime-related statistics, we also need to remember that we're talking about statistics related to victimization. Okay, And so when we measure delinquency, Chapter 2 gives us a little introduction into the different ways that we measure delinquency. Uh, it's important to understand that we cannot simply look at arrest statistics or police reports to determine the extent of delinquency. This is true because many crimes go undetected by the police, all right, or victims fail to report the crime. Chances are you probably have gotten away with something that could have been reported to the police, or you may have in fact found yourself a victim and uh, you did not report that to the authorities. As a result, we use different sources of information and there are several staple sources of information uh, that are considered reliable. I'm going to start with the official sort of police reports. That is, the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, produces what's known as the Uniform Crime Report. This is transitioning into what we call NIBRS, and so National Incident-Based Reporting. Okay, so the, but for now we have the UCR, and the FBI's UCR compiles official reports of criminal activity as well as arrest statistics for more than 17,000 police departments in the U.S. This only captures offenses that are quote-unquote known to the police. 
right? That is, someone has reported them to the authority or the police uh, uh, identified the crime and made the arrest. Uh, that, so this is to say uh, it does not include those crimes that go unreported or undetected. Although there are some uh, issues, these numbers though are extremely reliable because they come from an official police report. Okay, that is this official document of what occurred. And the FBI uses consistent definitions to categorize offenses. Okay, that way we get the same data from year to year. Uh, the fact that the data are collected year after year helps it uh, helps the UCR and the FBI track that data in uh, consistent ways and so we're able to see trends and trends are important because uh, they offer some prediction in what the future might hold. UCR is divided into two main categories part one offenses and part two offenses and so uh, part one offenses include murder okay which is uh, non-negligent uh, uh, it includes rather non-negligent homicide or manslaughter, okay, but we refer to it as murder, okay. Forcible rape, uh, now just defined as rape, okay, and so uh, forcible uh, separates this term from statutory rape, which involves uh, sex uh, that is illegal because of uh, the uh, minor's age, right, and so statutory meaning that it involves sex with a legally defined minor. Right, and so uh, in some cases that's separated, but again, that definition has uh, really been combined just simply to rape. Robbery. Uh, robbery is when someone uses force against a person in the commission of a theft, okay? So some people come home maybe to find their homes been burglarized and they say, I've been robbed. No, you have not, right? Robbery actually includes the use of force against a person. Okay, that's how it separates itself from burglary or just simply a theft. Uh, another offense here is aggravated assault. And sometimes it's, or it's felony assault, but aggravated assault. Burglary, as I mentioned, that's entering a building with the intent of committing another crime. So generally theft, but not always. Uh, but entering a building where you don't have permission to be there. Larceny, which is just another word for theft. Uh, motor vehicle theft and uh, in some cases arson is categorized in this although arson is probably the most rare of all. Um, as to the part two offenses well this includes basically everything else generally lower level offenses including vandalism, alcohol, drug violations and so forth. Uh, as of 2013 data juveniles were responsible for about 19 percent of part one property crimes so you think about within your part one offenses, you have uh, some that are considered violent crimes and some that are considered property crimes. And violent crimes being murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Again, uh, violent crimes being murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault. The property crimes include your burglary, your larceny, your motor vehicle theft, and your arson. And so juveniles responsible for about 19% of those property crimes in part one and about 11% of the arrest uh, for the violent crimes. 19% for property, 11% for, uh, 
for violent crimes as far as the part one. Most of these juvenile offenders are between the ages of 14 and 17. This age group represents about 6% of the total population and thus you can say that juveniles are responsible for a disproportionately larger share of the overall arrests. That is, they represent about 6% of the population and yet they contribute about 19% of property crimes and about 11% of violent crimes. Uh, when it comes to part two offenses, the textbook tells us there's about 600 uh, and or 630,000 juveniles arrested each year for part two offenses. Okay, about 630,000 arrested for these other lower level uh, quality of life sort of offenses. And so again, these uh, definitions have changed some with national incident based reporting which is including sort of a broader categorization of crime and giving us more data than the UCR traditionally gave us. And that is ultimately gonna make a shift uh, where we move completely away from UCR and completely towards NIBRS uh, in the near future. And so how is the UCR calculated? Just because Big Rapids, for example, may have fewer actual reported crimes than say Grand Rapids, uh, this does not mean that it is safer. The number of reported crimes uh, is higher in more populated areas than it is obviously in less populated rural areas. Um, but to account for this, to be able to compare apples to apples, uh, oranges to oranges, we have to compare the number of offenses per a certain number of people in the population, right? So how many offenses per a specific number of people in a population creates the rate. And so in statistics, the rate is important to us because it tells us how many offenses per X number of people. Okay. And so we can accurately then compare small places like Big Rapids or Nuego to large cities like Grand Rapids or even Chicago. And so the UCR, the Uniform Crime Report, uses the rate of crimes per 100,000 people. Again, UCR uses a crime rate, uh, a number of, number of offenses per 100,000 people. And so that is the rate of 234, for example, would mean that there are 234 crimes per 100,000 people in the community. So let's paint a scenario. Let's assume the community has 400,000 people and they report 936 burglaries in a year. Since there's 400,000 people in the community, we would divide the total number of crimes by four, okay? Since there's 400,000 people, that would give us a crime rate of 234 per 100,000. Now assume now that a community has 50,000 people and they have 134 burglaries in a year. Since there's 50,000 people, we need to multiply the number of offenses times two, okay? And so in this case, you can see the crime rate for burglaries in, a small, in the smaller community would be 268 offenses per 100,000. And so this illustrates how that even though there are fewer burglaries reported in the smaller of the two communities in this scenario, the smaller community actually had a higher rate of burglary than the larger community, okay? meaning that crime occurred 
uh, more often. Okay, and so that is important when we talk about understanding the crime rate. The next uh, source of data here to talk about is the National Crime Victimization Survey, sometimes simply known as the NCVS, National Crime Victimization Survey. In survey research, it's difficult or even impossible to survey every single member in society. And so as a result, researchers use a limited number of people for their study. And this is generally referred to as a sample, uh, since uh, there are... Uh, there they are sampling the overall population okay that's why we say sample uh, the goal is to develop a sample that is reflective of the overall population so that we can say the results are generalizable okay we can uh, use the the sample to make generalized statements about the total population in research the term population is used to reflect the total group of people uh, who share a particular characteristic, okay? such as high school students. We can say we want to know about all high school students in the United States. That's the population. Okay? But we're going to sample uh, randomly a thousand high school students from across the country. Okay? Hopefully if we had a thousand in our sample we randomly selected them, they're going to be reflective of that broader population. There's generalizability to whatever our results are. The National Crime Victimization Survey is a very large-scale survey that measures victimization in the United States by drawing a large representative sample of households from across the country. It includes persons over the age of 12. The uh, advantage of the NCVS compared to the UCR is that the, uh, the NCVS allows people to report things that they did not necessarily report to the police. Okay, so we're talking victimization here, and victim surveys like this one generally demonstrate that people only report, this is important, people only report about half or fewer of all offenses to the police. In general, people tend to report more serious crimes more frequently. Okay, less serious, less likely to report the police. Uh, sexual assault, though, is reported only about 42 to 50 percent of the time. Okay, uh, so people often un underreport or fail to report sexual assaults, uh, whereas only uh, about 17 percent of motor vehicle thefts are uh, reported. Okay, crimes that go underreported or undetected by the police are often referred to as the dark figure of crime. That is, when we look at official crime reports, we don't get a full picture. And so what we don't know, uh, short of these large-scale surveys, is how many offenses are going unreported. And we refer to that unreported portion as the dark figure of crime. Because the NCVS survey is used from year to year with a little change in the questions and definitions and so forth, we can follow trends in victimization much the same way as we can follow trends and reported crimes with the UCR. In any type of self-reported survey though, researchers are always concerned about either over or under reporting. For example, in youth surveys, uh, youth survey participants generally uh, called a respondent in a survey, um, they may over report certain things, right? You're in eighth grade and you're asked to take a survey about your sexual activity, chances are you may over report that or in high school for that matter, 
Same way with drug use, wanting to impress friends, uh, when talking about the survey in a classroom setting uh, where people may share their responses. Alternatively, youth may underreport things such as abuse, right, or assault out of embarrassment, uh, not wanting to uh, reveal that in some type of survey. They may underreport it. Regardless, researchers sometimes know how to adjust and control for these type of errors in reporting. Okay, they use statistical methods that uh, allow them to adjust for error. Another common error that researchers have to watch out for is their sampling. And so when you evaluate research findings, always look to how the researcher constructed their sample. Good samples should reflect the population in terms of demographics, things such as sex, age, race, and so forth. And there are sometimes significant differences in the construction of samples in the population that the researcher was intending to measure. One easy example I always give is if I wanted to know something about high school students and I only went to the richest, most affluent private schools in the, in the state, and that's who I surveyed, uh, their answers may not be consistent with those of us that went through the public school system. Okay, and so hopefully you can see that there might be some differences there. Alternatively, if I only go to the worst high schools in the state uh, and survey them, they may not be reflective of the high schools uh, in other places around the state, right, public schools. The next survey to talk about here is Monitoring the Future, MTF, that's surveyed large-scale, again, reliable source of data and juvenile delinquency, and the Monitoring the Future is conducted each year uh, with a sample of 8th, 10th, and 12th grade students from across the country. Our textbook claims that the MTF study is probably the nation's most important ongoing self-report survey. When we talk about these self-report surveys, keep in mind that's when you're asking uh, individuals to tell us about their activities. Okay? Other sources of data include the National Youth Survey and the Pride Surveys. These follow 6th through 12th grade students, uh, uh, two major sources of data, but other survey research from government sources such as the Center for Disease Control, uh, the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey, we're going to use that in this class, uh, for example, but the Prevention and Office of Juvenile Delinquency Prevention, uh, OJJDP, uh, as well as other academic researchers are importantly providing us with good data. These sources uh, help us realize the extent to which juveniles contribute to crime in the United States and they help us identify trends uh, which importantly helps us establish prevention priorities. In some cases they help us understand what interventions are working and which ones are not. And so as we try to decide on public policies that is important to us. We talk about experimental data and so a lot of times uh, not only in social sciences but we see this also in health professions uh, there is some effort to conduct experimental research and in assessing sources of information self-report studies are not the only thing to consider here. We have experimental uh, research in some cases often referred to as randomized control trials or RCTs. Uh, experimental uh, study designs where researchers compare the treatment of a sample group Okay, that's the ones getting the intervention to that in a control group. For example, if we want to know whether a drug prevention program is working, we might set up a randomized control trial 
where some youth are exposed to the program uh, and compare their results to youth who did not receive the program. That would be a uh, example of an experimental design. Observational data in criminal justice, a lot of times we have to rely on observational data. Uh, and so we'll conduct research by observing or interviewing a small group of respondents in order to better understand certain issues. And this sometimes yields what we call qualitative data, which means it focuses not on statistics, but on people's uh, description of their lived experiences. And so observational data uh, can include quantitative or qualitative um, outputs. Cohort studies are important to us where uh, researchers try to follow a cohort, a group. Some of you may have graduated high school with the exact same group that you started kindergarten with, right? And so that's just true. And so cohort studies follow the same group of kids, uh, such as the ones born in a given year over a certain time period, sometimes all the way through from birth through adulthood. And so researchers really commit here to following those same cohorts. And so uh, what do we know about them in fourth grade and then in eighth grade and 12th grade and so forth? Cohort studies are important because uh, they help us understand changes over time in a person's life. The idea of birth cohort also important to us in criminal justice because the more babies born in a given year, the more juvenile crime there will be uh, when they start to reach that age where we know they will engage in some delinquent acts. If uh, there are spikes or declines in the population, we can see proportional rises and falls in the overall crime numbers. So that's important to us. Meta-analysis uh, meta or systematic reviews. And so if you're trying to do a research paper, uh, whether this class or others, uh, look for meta-analysis or systematic reviews. And so uh, if you've had to write a research paper with peer-reviewed sources, uh, there's a lot of research out there. Sometimes you get lost in the sea of all uh, these different journal articles. Type in those keywords, meta-analysis or peer review, along with your topic and see what you find. Meta-analysis involves a gathering of data from a number of previous studies, and these data are pulled together and systematically reviewed in a way that helps us understand the level of consequence, uh, or the consensus rather, I'm sorry, the, the level of consensus among all of the different research studies, okay? Looking for consensus, uh, what we know, okay, based on all of the available research. Systematic reviews are very similar in this way in that they look across different research studies to um, see what consistency is there. So what's correlated with delinquency? What do we mean by correlates? Again, I've described this, but when we say something's correlated, we mean there's a statistical relationship between two things. However, just because something is correlated does not mean that one thing causes the other. Relationship does not imply causation. And so um, an easy example here, you think about the fact that crime goes up as ice cream consumption goes up. And if you think logically about that, uh, crime goes up during the summer months. And so the fact that uh, crime increases in the summer is really more important to us than the fact that crime and ice cream are correlated. Uh, it, when we're talking about the correlates of delinquency, though, certain personal, environmental, social, developmental factors 
all have been shown to have a statistical relationship with offending patterns. For example, males are far more likely than females to be delinquent. Males commit double the number of property crimes as females and about four times, uh, 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 or I'm sorry, about four uh, serious violent crimes to every one that the females commit. Okay, so about four times as many violent crimes and about twice as many property crimes. And so a gender absolutely correlated with crime. Other factors include early antisocial behavior, uh, emotional factors, poor cognitive development, low intelligence, hyperactivity, very correlated, uh, poor school performance or a failure to bond at school, living in poverty, particularly in disorganized or bad neighborhoods, having delinquent friends, inconsistent parenting, uh, uh, maltreatment or suffering from family violence, abuse and neglect, having criminal or antisocial parents, teen parenthood, and peer rejection. These are just some examples. Moving on to crime trends, when we talk about crime trends, uh, crime generally peaked in the early 1990s, and though there uh, are about 1.16 million violent crimes per year, a rate of 368 per 100,000, uh, this is about 800,000 fewer than what was reported in 1991. Property crimes have declined about 10% over the past decade alone. According to the textbook, crime has dropped about 50% overall from that peak. Juvenile offending, uh, while remaining disproportionately high, has also, of course, declined. It peaked in the mid-1990s, slightly behind the adult offending patterns, and overall arrests uh, are down about 46% from that peak in the 1990s. Though the chapter does not discuss in great detail, uh, much of this crime drop was attributed to juveniles' involvement in the crack cocaine market, which collapsed in the 1990s. Teen arrest for murder has declined from 1,500, for example, in 1998 to about 600 uh, to date. Victimization reports, the NCVS in the U.S., uh, residents 12 and older estimate that there's about 23 million violent and property crime victimizations each year. And then CVS actually shows a more dramatic drop in crime than the UCR numbers, showing the overall youthful victimization of 12 to 17 down 70 percent from 1994, and violent victimization down 80 percent since 1993. Similar drops in offenses uh, with property crimes down 77 percent. It is impossible to talk about juvenile delinquency without recognizing that we're talking about offenders of a certain age, specifically 12 or 14 uh, years of age up to about 17. And though some younger children commit crazy crimes, the bulk of delinquency is committed by those in early teen years through their 18th birthday. As stated uh, earlier, we are concerned in part by the size of birth cohorts because they impact the overall amount of offenses. However, within the co cohort, uh, we look at basic, uh, at what we call the basic age of onset uh, into delinquency. And that's the age at which a youth begins their delinquent career. And as we track into adult criminality, 
we know that most offenders age out. Okay, they stop offending. And this aging out process is the tendency of you to reduce the frequency of their offending behaviors as they age. These uh, things do not occur equally though through a given cohort. Some offenders will start offending earlier and will continue their patterns longer into life. Uh, others come into crime later and then they desist, right? They stop, they desist at an earlier age. They mature out. And with that said, chapter two briefly addresses one well-known study in, ju in this uh, juvenile cohort idea, and that is Wolfgang and colleagues from the early 1970s. And so uh, what's important in their findings uh, was that about 6%, 6% of offenders known as the chronic 6%, we're actually responsible for 52% of all offenses. More than 7 out of 10 homicides, 8 out of 10 robberies, and 6 out of 10 assaults, right? All from this chronic 6%. 60% of assaults, 80% uh, of robberies, and 70% of homicides. Total offenses, 52%. All from this 6% of the cohort, which are known as the chronic 6%. These chronic offenders are far more likely to go on to be adult criminals than anyone else. This concept is referred to as the continuity of crime. When I'm talking about uh, persistence, we talk about the continuity of crime. Uh, what causes chronic offending? Again, well, we have to look at risk and protective factors. Some of these are summarized in the textbook on page 52, figure 2.2. Although chapter 2 does not directly address the issue, what we really want to know is why young people become criminals uh, while others do not. Okay, what causes someone to be a criminal? That's what we're really looking at here. Uh, and that's what we sort of look at it over the course of the semester. Over the course of the semester, we'll consider uh, what causes young people to engage in delinquency as well as what causes them to desist. As criminal justice agents, it's important that we understand the trends, patterns, and correlates of crime. In order to do this, we must be able to identify good sources of information, uh, such as the UCR, or now NIBRS, the, the NCVS, as, and the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance uh, Survey that we're going to talk about in more detail later in the semester. And we got to be able to interpret what we read, both in government publications and research. And so, although crime peaked uh, in the early 1990s, and it's been in relative decline since then, teenagers uh, have extremely high crime rates. And if we want to know how to prevent young people from adult lives of crime, we need to understand how to address the issue of juvenile delinquency. I uh, hope this has been helpful to you. As always, if you have questions, feel free to email them to me or otherwise reach out.